Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has done it again, needlessly, publicly, and brutally humiliating himself for absolutely no reason. Tuberville has made it a routine doing this to himself, and it's always as funny as it is painful to watch. We'll look at a few different things in this segment. We'll get to him being confronted brutally so about his state Supreme Court's IVF ruling and him really struggling to even understand much less articulate coherently his own stance on this issue but first i want to look at something different tommy tuberville tweeted out and by the way this is something we talked about yesterday on the bonus show you can get access to the daily bonus show at lukebeasleyshow.com membership but tuberville tweeted out hope joe biden enjoyed going out for ice cream in nyc while the rest of the city is afraid of crime and migrants and immediately as you can imagine lots of people correctly dogpiled tommy tuberville for a ridiculous post you have Kyle Whitmer saying NYC's homicide rate is 4.8 per 100,000 people. Alabama's homicide rate, the state, of course, Tuberville represents, is 15.9 per 100,000. 15.9. More than three times that of NYC. You also have Mayor Eric Adams responding to this saying, guess you haven't visited New York City in a while. Jobs are up. Crime is down and we're delivering for working people, all that. And we support reproductive health, especially IVF. And quick pause before reading more of these responses. Make sure you have liked this video and the alert bells click. People are not getting notifications. We're hearing. So make sure that alert bell is clicked so you can watch the videos right when they drop. Then uh, the Daily Show responded saying, this guy's home state just ruled that Rocky Road is legally human. Of course, referencing the IVF ruling. And even X had a community uh, note on Tuberville's post that read, uh, New York's homicide rate is 4.8 per 100,000 people. Alabama, the state Tuberville represents, has a homicide rate of 15.9 third highest in the nation. Florida, the state where Tuberville actually resides, also has a significantly higher homicide rate than New York City at 7.4 per 100,000 people. Yeah, and of course, we've talked about this more broadly. A 2020 study found, the one we've talked a good bit about, that the murder rate uh, was 40% higher in red states that voted for Trump than blue states for Biden. But since we've had that conversation a million times, I want to put emphasis quickly on something different here. Something really struck me during yesterday's bonus show, and it has a few times in the past. Think about how normal it is for Republican politicians to speak about blue cities and blue areas in disgust. As you saw from Tuberville and many others, Ron DeSantis going to San Francisco and doing this whole tour while he was running for president, talking about how horrible and crime-ridden and nasty and Trump speaks about DC in that way. There's trash everywhere. It's all horrible. But you could never imagine a Democratic politician, Joe Biden, going around Alabama and saying, oh, it was horrible. I hated it. But that's how Republicans talk about blue areas, even though on so many of these metrics, when you actually look at the data, when you actually care about the facts, their argument flies in the face of the facts. And on so many of these important subjects, it's actually blue states overperforming compared to red states. But still, regardless of that conversation, just the respect element. Republicans, again, speak about and discuss blue city, uh, cities and will do videos of them walk around. Oh, it's horrible. But Democratic politicians and those on the left in the media would never dare do such a thing. It's a really interesting double standard there. But moving on from that, this latest incident where 
Tuberville gets called out by the entire internet. Reminded me of when he said this on Twitter, broadband is vital for the success of our rural communities and for our entire economy. Great to see Alabama receive crucial funds to boost ongoing broadband efforts. And that was his response to an article reporting on the broadband investments being made in rural Alabama. What's wrong with that, you might be asking, Luke? Well, he voted against the very legislation that made it possible, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Because it was one of Joe Biden's landmark achievements, he couldn't dare support it. But then, when his constituents see their lives improving, whether it be because of that, the bipartisan infrastructure law, or the Inflation Reduction Act, or whatever it might be, he sure as hell wants the constituents to think he had something to do with it, which is ridiculous. And before getting to Tuberville, being confronted and sort of crumbling over the IVF ruling, I do want to remind you on the taking credit for things that you oppose topic of a moment where Pete Buttigieg really nicely responded to this. Take a look. Many others stood in the way, uh, denounced it as uh, wasteful spending, denounced it as socialism. And of course, what's remarkable is uh, it turns out they don't think it's socialism when it's coming to their districts. They think it's so great uh, that they want to be at the press conference. They send press releases touting their uh, advocacy for it. Sometimes they even uh, describe themselves as having secured it, which is uh, uh, obviously, you know, it's hard not to chuckle at that sitting in the uh, Department of Transportation that's approving some of these grants or knowing that uh, other departments in the Biden-Harris administration are making the decision to send this funding to these constituencies. But I think what we're demonstrating is, look, we're going to send this funding where it's needed. Uh, and, and this is places that are red, blue and purple. We're not going to punish any American for the short-sightedness of their elected officials. These are good projects. And, you know, look, the sign of a bad policy is the people who pushed it abandon it later on. The sign of a good policy is even the people who fought it and stood in the way at the time uh, come to support it. I just wish they would be a little more straightforward and maybe even go so far as to acknowledge that they were wrong when they said that this infrastructure bill was a bad idea. And they were wrong to call it socialism uh, as evidenced by the fact, that, or, or at least wrong to denounce it uh, as, as socialism and, and, and wasteful spending. Uh, if it is socialism, then it seems to be socialism that these Republicans uh, love when it's coming their way. Absolutely. And with that being said, as we've covered, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that fertilized embryos are human beings, essentially crushing IVF in the state of Alabama because the liability for IVF centers is just far too high when that's the definition. Of course, it's getting appealed, but just a bonkers decision. And again, I covered that more in depth with my resident lawyer, Aaron Parnas. But in response to that, Tuberville was confronted by a reporter and he just seemed profoundly confused about the subject, flip-flopping his views, saying he was for IVF, but also for the decision and just all mixed up. Take a look. Dasha Burns with NBC News. I wanted to ask, do you have a reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on the fact that embryos are children? Yeah, I was all for it. Uh, you know, you just got to look at everything going on in the country. It's a, just attack on families, attack on kids. You know, anything that we can do for the future of our young people because they're our number one commodity, we need to have more kids. We need to have an opportunity to do that. And this, I thought this was the right thing to do. But IVF is used to have more children, and right now IVF services are paused at some of the clinics in Alabama. Aren't you concerned that this could impact people who are trying to have kids? Well, that's for, that's for another conversation. I think the big thing is right now you protect, you go back to the situation and, and try to work it out to where it's best for everybody. I mean, it, it, that's, what, that's what the whole abortion issue is about. 
So but this really isn't about abortion. It's about no, no, I, no. IVF and the concern that now but families it, might it, not have access to it. But it's about the same direction. But I agree. But people need to have access. People need to have. We need more kids. We need the people to to have the opportunity to have kids. IVF. IVF is not a Democrat or Republican issue. Families across the board use it. What, what do you? What is your message to the Supreme Court if this does in fact stop families from being able to use IVF? Well, we don't need that. You know, I'm all, I'm I'm understanding that we need people to have an opportunity to have kids okay that's that's my whole whole uh, you uh women that's, oh sure sure I, do. sure I do sure i do sure i do i understand that i mean that's not my decision but do you agree with that decision no i they should be able to yeah should be able sure they should sure they do you agree with the supreme court decision or not I'd have to look at what they're agreeing to and not agreeing to. I haven't seen that. Okay. So he said he's all for it, meaning the decision, and by the end says he's not for it, and I don't know, i got to read into it, not sure. What's really aggravating is he cares so little about actually helping people that he didn't even bother to read up on the decision and solidify his own stance. To the families in Alabama who were super excited about having a child who won't be able to because of this decision, it's a slap in the face that he's so uninformed he can't even articulate a coherent position. So this is coming at a critical moment for the Republicans' impeachment inquiry. And on Capitol Hill, a lot of Republican lawmakers say they have seen zero evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. And right now, the Republicans do not have enough votes to impeach. And after dozens of interviews and over 100,000 documents released to the committees, uh, the Republicans have yet to produce any direct evidence of misconduct by Joe Biden. But man, man, does this look absolutely terrible. I have more to play for you from that back and forth in just a moment, but I want to quickly jump in to give you the context. It happened once again, one of those wonderful tense Fox and Friends moments where Steve Ducey's forced to inject an eensy-weensy tiny bit of sanity into the conversation that causes his co-hosts to lose their minds and rage over the unfortunate situation for them, which is that the facts often don't seem to align. Rarely do they align with what they believe, especially when it comes to their nonsense allegations and theories about President Joe Biden. As we talked about yesterday, in the wake of Alexander Smirnov's indictment, it's been really interesting to observe how those who have been running with Smirnov's fake story about Biden have been responding to the news that he was indicted for fabricating it to the FBI. And while none of us should be surprised at this point, at least for me, it's actually been somewhat shocking to see how seemingly no Republicans are changing course. Seemingly no one is going, oh, the informant that prompted much of these political stunt investigations and Joe Biden was just indicted for feeding false information at the FBI and fabricating this entire thing. Plus, interesting detail, being fed these stories according to him by Russian intelligence. Maybe, just maybe, we should rethink and stop spewing this nonsense. But no, it's continued as if that didn't happen at all. Now, I want to play this uh, full clip, not only because it's always interesting to see Steve Ducey fact check his co-host, it's just a delight, and it always causes things to get a little bit uncomfy on the Fox and Friends couch, 
but also because packed into this clip is so much disinformation that I want to debunk it properly for you all. This clip is the embodiment of why your Fox News watching uncle is so misled. They're able, these Fox hosts, to build up a gazillion seemingly compelling talking points, but if you take the time to actually dive into them and fact check them, they fall apart epically and quickly before playing the clip please make sure you have liked this video and click the alert bell so that you get notifications a lot of people have been saying they haven't been getting notifications for my channel so click that whatever you can do to make sure you see when the videos come out would be absolutely appreciated here it is the republicans have yet to produce any direct evidence of misconduct by Joe Biden. But man, man, does this look absolutely terrible. 150 suspicious activity reports around them. Joe Biden was in on meetings with every yes. major deal in regarding Hunter Biden. Give he said, my calls. dad is sitting next to me while talking to a Chinese CFC official. Many phone calls. There were uh, there's a two hundred thousand dollar check that was paid to 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 Biden. Then you've got uh, inexperienced Hunter Biden, who admitted that to ABC in an interview, he said, yeah, I shouldn't have, I don't really have any experience in this. Then why are you on the board? Well, and the other thing was he was trying to get on the board of this Chinese company when it wasn't clear that he was running for president when he was a former vice president at the time. And why are you emailing over a pseudo address if you don't want people to know, if you don't mind people knowing what you uh, do or do not know about your son's business. And when he looked Peter in the eye and said, I know nothing about my son's overseas business dealings, he was flat out lying. And then, well, and he, then a few what, weeks a later, here's the picture of him on the golf course right. with the business partner. Devin Archer? He, Correct. Maybe he thought he was the caddy. I think there is so, evidence. Well, uh, yeah, I think it, there, there are many lawmakers who say they've seen zero evidence of high crimes. But what we just said. Say that they have. But they've, to impeach somebody, you need direct evidence of misconduct by Joe Biden. Look, Hunter Biden, it sure looks like he traded on his name. And he's going to have plenty with, of time With his today. dad, the he's role gonna, his dad has played is key. We're going to have plenty of time, the Republicans are, to ask him a million questions. It will be interesting to hear what he has to say. But right now, you know, uh, according to Republicans, there's no... What some, Republicans? Some... Some Republicans say they've got the goods on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, but a number of Republicans who I've spoken to on Capitol Hill say there's no direct evidence of misconduct by the current president. It's the, so, they're the, just so corrupt. This that whole is, so is so unbelievable. Corrupt. So again, so much was packed into that few minutes. And if we try to be as empathetic as possible to those being misled, the viewers of Fox News, you sort of understand why they're confused. Now, sometimes it seems like they're willingly confused because when they are faced with facts, they don't change their mind. But that sounded like a good argument on his face from Ainsley and Brian. Biden was being paid money and a part of business meetings and Hunter Biden admitted he wasn't qualified. Such a strong case against Joe Biden. The only problem is it's all nonsense. And let's go through it one point at a time. Number one, the suspicious activity report point. That's no evidence of a crime. Millions are created each year. Has nothing to do with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's finances have been combed through extensively by David Weiss's team. And they found he indeed avoided paying taxes during his troubled time dealing with drug addiction, part of his life we know probably too much about thanks to Republicans, but that's why he was indicted for tax avoidance. But no evidence of wrongdoing connected to Joe Biden. And while that investigation of Hunter Biden's finances didn't yield evidence of any of the claims that Republicans are making against Joe Biden, David Weiss did again go on to indict the guy who made said claims to the FBI because he was making it up. Number two, they said a bunch of stuff about Biden being in meetings. Brian said uh, Joe Biden was in on, quote, every major deal, end quote. That's just something he pulled out of you know where. 
And contrary to what you heard, witness after witness brought forward by Republicans testified to the fact that Joe Biden never engaged with Hunter Biden's business partners on the subject of business. They're trying to lie about times in person or over the phone when Joe Biden would say hi to Hunter and because Hunter was in a business setting, Joe Biden would say hi to those people as well. But as Devin Archer and others testified to, it would just be pleasantries. I think the example he used was the weather and they never got into business. It would be small talk, which is allowed, notably. <laughs> Number three, Ainsley said there's a $200,000 check to Joe Biden. Yes, when he wasn't in office, he loaned his brother $200,000 and then his brother paid it back. Oh my goodness. On the check that she referenced, it's written loan repayment. So how Biden being paid back for a zero interest loan he gave to his brother, thus making no money is an example of him making money. I don't know. Almost as scandalous as Biden helping Hunter buy a truck and then getting paid back a whopping $4,000. Once again, making no profit. The money laundering endeavor of this entry, huh? It just sounds like Biden's a good dad and brother, to be honest. Number four, I'm getting tired, but we're gonna go through everything. Ainsley said that Hunter Biden in an ABC interview admitted he wasn't qualified to be on the Burisma board and shouldn't have been. That's just a lie. She's just lying. The ABC News interview that she's referencing is from 2019, where Hunter said the opposite. Quote, I was completely qualified to be on the board. That's the opposite. CNN fact checked this also as follows. When the ABC interviewer asked what his qualifications for the role were, he said, well, I was vice chairman on the board of Amtrak for five years. I was the chairman of the board of the UN World Food Program. I was a lawyer for boys Schiller Flexner, one of the most prestigious law firms in the world. Bottom line is that I know that I was completely qualified to be on the board to head up the corporate governance and transparency committee on the board. And that's all that I focused on basically turning an Eastern European independent natural gas company into Western standards of corporate governance. When the ABC News interviewer said, you didn't have any extensive knowledge about natural gas or Ukraine itself though, Biden responded, no, but I think I had as much knowledge as anybody else that was on the board, if not more. The opposite of what Ainsley Earhart said. By the way, if you had anything on Joe Biden, like anything real, you wouldn't feel the need to make so much dang stuff up. But there's more. Number five, the fifth misleading point or lie. Brian said something about Biden considering sitting on a board before he decided to run for president. Really? I don't even know what's supposed to be the concerning element of that. When Biden thought he was retired from politics, as reportedly was the case, and Brian Kilme there admitted to, he may have considered, reportedly considered, sitting on a board and then didn't. Shocking. Impeach him. Uh, number six, Brian brought up using pseudonyms over email. I fact-checked this in the past, but that's something high government officials do to protect their identity standard operating procedure. And number seven, Brian said Joe Biden lied about knowing nothing about Hunter Biden's business deals, they're still unable to prove that that's at all the case. He did not lie, at least according to the investigation they've been doing. Witness after witness confirms Biden didn't know about his son's business deals. And number eight, they brought up Devin Archer on a golf course. Again, already addressed what Devin Archer had to say about Joe Biden. Never a part of anything. And then that's where Steve Ducey jumps back in and says that even many Republicans don't see evidence of wrongdoing on Joe Biden's part. But that, do you see how long that took? That's why these are so difficult. 
in terms of dealing with these lies. There's a quote from someone, <laughs> I don't know who it is, but about a lie getting halfway around the world before the truth can lace up its shoes. And that clip is a great example of it. It almost always takes longer to fact check a lie than it took to tell the lie. And so for those who don't feel any obligation to the truth, they can very easily build what appears at first glance to be a strong argument. But if you take a little bit of time and take a closer look into it, it's a big bucket of nonsense. And that's what I uh, wanted to exemplify in this segment. So just because you hear some <laughs> someone barf out a bunch of quickly rattled off talking points that include words like emails and money and meetings doesn't mean they're actually making any sense. And Republicans, my message to you is those still pushing these lies about Biden after everything we've learned in the last few weeks and months, you should feel ashamed of yourselves. My Just goodness. a little. My goodness. Um, <laughs> so Judge Engeron says that he wants this $350 million within 30 days. Now, I know that you're planning on appealing this, but you've still right. got to put up the full amount pending that appeal. Does Donald Trump have that kind yeah. of money sitting around? Yes. I mean, he does. Of course, he has money. You know, he's a billionaire. Um, we know that. Um, and Well, looks like that may not have been the case, which I guess is not shocking given who delivered that message. I want to bring in Aaron Parnas, our legal expert. Always so great to be with you, Aaron. What is the news? It looks like Trump may be pinching pennies pretty yeah. soon. Or yeah, right Luke, now. this is like truly breaking news coming out of New York right now. So for some background, Donald Trump filed an emergency stay, essentially, with the appellate court in New York saying that he could not afford to pay the full $454 million judgment currently against him. Remember, it's $355 million plus about $100 million in interest. Trump, in a filing this morning, said, we need to stay that monetary judgment we, and that he can't essentially pay it. He asked instead to put up $100 million in a bond instead of the full $454 um, so that he can appeal the judgment. Um, and he, in that same filing, he said that if he were forced to have to put up the full 454, he would have to sell property uh, to be able to satisfy the difference. Um, so essentially, he admits that he can't afford the judgment from um, the Manhattan court, that he would he only has about one hundred million dollars in liquid cash and that he's in a big pickle. So that that's what happened this morning. But now the appellate court ruled very quickly um, in a matter of hours and essentially said, absolutely not. You're not entitled to that stay. And Donald Trump still has to pay the full 454, whether or not he wants to appeal. If he wants to appeal, it's a bond. If he doesn't want to appeal, he's got to give it up to the state of New York. So he is going to be out of money in terms of cash on hand. He's already going to have to go to selling properties. And remind me, didn't he claim to have 400 million plus in cash in a deposition? Yeah, he, he did. Um, so he, he may very well have more cash. Um, he just doesn't want to necessarily give it up for lifestyle reasons. Remember, he also has that $83 million judgment um, from e, the E. Jean Carroll case. Now, one important caveat in this appellate court's decision is that it did not stay the part of the, or it, it did stay the part of the judgment that would have removed Trump from being a director of the Trump organization, um, which allows him to continue to essentially apply for loans on behalf of the Trump organization. And I wouldn't be surprised if he were to apply for loans in an effort to satisfy the 
$350 million difference. Uh, so we're gonna see what happens. Okay, and are the next steps here after this decision some process or right now does he have to start selling and paying up? Yeah, so he, here's what happens next. Trump has realistically 30 days from when the judgment was entered last week to officially appeal the decision. To appeal the decision, he has to put up the full $454 million. So if he wants to appeal, he's going to have to come up with $454, $454 million in cash by, I believe it's mid-March, sometime in mid-March. Um, so that's really the next steps. And in the meantime, interest is going to continue to accrue on that judgment. So it's only going to grow by another $110,000 per day or so. So it's really not looking good for Trump. If for whatever reason he's not able to get a loan, he, he doesn't have the cash, then yeah, he's going to have to start selling property um, in the next couple weeks to try to satisfy the judgment. Or he's going to just have to sell more Trump sneakers, whatever comes first. <laughs> and can he use donor money to at least in part pay off some of these things? It's an interesting question. No, the, he, it, that would be a federal crime. He can't use donor money to satisfy personal. So he might do it. <laughs> you never know. Um, but no, he, he he's not going to do that. He can't do that. I think the more, most likely outcome here is that he'll get a loan that he'll then have to re repay um, at an extremely high interest rate or something. Um, but honestly, we, we don't know. Remember, and if he can't satisfy the $454 million in the next three weeks or so, um, then Letitia James and the New York Attorney General's office, they can then go and try to force a sale of, for example, Trump Tower or another one of his properties that are in New York. So that was something we talked about in a previous segment, Letitia James saying she's not opposed to and would seize Trump Tower if he wasn't uh, paying up. What would that actually look like? I'm curious. Yeah, the process I mean, of seizing his properties. It's a good question. You're not going to see Letitia James uh, seize the property, knock down the doors, and take over Trump Tower overnight. That's not what's. That's not what would happen. Rip down the letters. <laughs> it's not going to happen. What Trump Tower is worth hundreds of millions. If I believe over a billion dollars. Um, the judgment is 450 million. In a case like this, what you would have, what you would see is it, uh, you would have a partition sale of the property. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office would get X amount, $450 million or so, to satisfy the judgment. Then uh, the remainder of the sale would go in cash to Trump, the Trump Organization, whoever is owns the, the property, essentially. So it's a long process. Uh, Letitia James could start that process in court, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight or anything, and it's not going to turn into the Letitia James Tower or anything. And one of the things I was thinking about, I do think, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is going to hinder Trump in numerous ways, just in terms of his financial situation. Clearly, he wasn't wanting to use a bunch of his own cash on his presidential campaign or on his legal expenses, because we saw that reporting about $50 million of donor money was spent on Trump's legal fees. So going forward, can you see realistically a real financial issue um, becoming an obstacle for him in paying off the normal presidential expenses that are huge, the uh, legal expenses and these different judgments he has to pay. Yeah, honestly, at the end of the day, Trump will likely find a way to pay this judgment because he has either assets, property valued more than $450 million. That likely won't end up being a problem in the long haul. 
But at the end of the day, if he becomes president, for example, this judgment's not going away. He can't just pardon himself in the state of New York. That's not how this works. This is going to be a headache that he is going to have to live with until um, he either satisfies the judgment or he passes away, one or the other. Um, and I honestly would not be surprised to see Trump or the Trump organization file for bankruptcy as a result of this judgment. I mean, he's filed for bankruptcy before. Wouldn't be surprised to see him do it again. Yeah, and even though he can technically do it, I do think just in terms of his ego and so much of his identity is wrapped up and these properties, having to sell that, I think, is him taking a blow to his, his ego. We got some massive news out of the Supreme Court. This has to do with Trump's immunity case. Of course, Aaron Parnas joins us, our resident legal expert, or joins me, I guess, more accurately said. Aaron, what's the news? The Supreme Court just issued a major decision in the immunity case. The court decided to take up the merits of whether or not Donald Trump is immune from criminal prosecution in special counsel Jack Smith's criminal prosecution related to the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. So as we know, Trump had previously argued that he was absolutely immune from prosecution. Judge Chutkin rejected that argument. He then appealed it to the D.C. Circuit. They rejected that argument in a 3-0 decision. Then Trump again appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided to take up the case. It didn't have to, uh, but four justices or at least four justices agreed to consider the merits of the case. And now we have an expedited briefing schedule and oral argument the week of April 22nd. Um, we will get a decision on this issue by end of June of this year. And the initial response from a lot of people, I think, would be, oh, my gosh, this is good for Trump, which in a sense it is. They're agreeing to hear this so they could rule in his favor and overturn the previous ruling. Uh, and a lot of people expect it to be slapped down. We're not even going to take this up. But is there more to that story, Aaron? I think so. Um, so yeah, initially, in the short term, this is good for Trump because this is going to delay the DC criminal trial to at least August or September in the event the Supreme Court rejects Trump's immunity argument. And then it'll push up closer to the November election. You might even have further delays until after the election. It's not bad for him in the short term. But I think the reason the Supreme Court took this case was because Trump already asserted that same defense in, in the Florida Mar-a-Lago case. I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court decides to kind of issue a sweeping ruling here, saying that presidents are not entitled to absolute immunity in all scenarios, not just a limited ruling when it comes to January 6th and what happened in Washington, D.C., um, essentially undercutting any attempt to appeal or, sorry, delay the Mar-a-Lago case or really set a precedent for future presidents. Uh, who want to try to claim immunity. So I, I don't think this is as bad as people are going to make it out to be, but in the short term, it's definitely not great to get a resolution because this is just going to delay the trial. Obviously, I want this to move along so that the trial can happen before the election, but also I'm sure if you're arguing in favor of this from the Supreme Court's perspective, they want to make it decided on, have a precedent for future situations like this, because this is so unprecedented right now that everything's sort of up in the air. In the future, there will have been a decision on this issue of presidential immunity. Walk us through again, remind the audience, if you would, Aaron, what this case was about. We've talked about it a lot, but just walk us through sort of the Trump side argument and the imposing side. 
Yeah, for sure. So Donald Trump essentially argued that he was absolutely immune from any actions he took related to what happened on January 6, 2021, because he was president of the United States. Special counsel Jack, uh, uh, special counsel essentially said, no, there is no such thing as presidential immunity. If you recalled in the D.C. Circuit argument, this is the case where the D.C. Circuit asked uh, Trump's attorney whether or not um, essentially Trump could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political opponent. Um, and if he weren't to, if he weren't impeached first, whether he could be convicted in a court of law. Um, this is that case. And, and I think one also important note that you made, Luke, is that if the Supreme Court didn't act here and didn't decide the case on the merits, what you would have is you would just have D.C. Circuit law as precedent. The D.C. Circuit opinion would be the precedent. D.C. Circuit opinion precedent ap applies primarily to what happens within the D.C. Circuit or within the Washington, D.C. area. It wouldn't stop Trump from asserting presidential immunity in Florida, which is in the 11th Circuit, or another president for asserting immunity in another jurisdiction outside of D.C. because that ruling from the D.C. Circuit is not binding on any other court. Um, it's just persuasive authority. Um, once the Supreme Court issues a decision, however, that decision is binding on every court around the country. So there, there is a method to this madness, even though it's going to delay the process. And then two follow-up questions on that. The first being, is there any chance this really conservative Supreme Court could rule in Trump's favor? It seems like even they would find this too absurd of an argument, having that sort of immunity. Then after that, my question is, how long do you think it'll take for them to make this decision? Yeah, to the first point, I mean, I think anything's possible. I think you may have the court rule um, in favor of him. I I would say it's highly unlikely, though, and I wouldn't be surprised if you had a full 9-0 decision on this issue, um, all nine justices kind of rejecting uh, Trump's immunity argument. Similarly to, if you recall, um, the Colorado case that removed Trump from the state's primary ballot, I wouldn't be surprised if you had a 9-0 decision in favor of Trump in that case to keep him on the ballot, and a 9-0 decision in this case to um, reject his immunity appeal just because it's so politically motivated. And the last thing the Supreme Court wants to do is seem politically motivated. At least that's what the justices say publicly. And then to your second question, Luke, the answer is really simple. We're gonna get a decision by the end of the summer, by the end of June, which is when all of the Supreme Court decisions are gonna come out. So we'll know by the end of June. Aaron, where can people find you? On all my social media platforms, at Aaron Parnas.